Coming to you from LARB HQ in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm sitting down today with a writer whose work you probably know first from television. He's written for a New Girl, Saturday Night Live, The United States of Terra, Up All Night, and he's got a new book out for young adult audiences, but I think anybody can read it and laugh. It's Firecracker. The author is David Iserson. David, first of all, is it United States of Terra or Tara? Um, it's, not not to just jump away from your book immediately, but I've wondered. I haven't seen that one. I, I think there were there were actually there were feuds within the writers' room. I I pronounced it Tara. I think it was pronounced Tara on the show because I've I've known people named Tara. Um, uh, no, no less than Steven Spielberg, who I guess came up with the idea of the show, pronounced it United States of Tara. Mm-hmm. So there was definitely a camp in the in the producers' end who pronounced it that way. But no, I I think it was Tara. I, I um there there's also I've always found that there is a um eastern uh, a northeast differentiation between the pronunciation of Sarah or Sarah. Oh, I can hardly even hear that one. But then again, I am very West Coast. I I pronounce friends of mine Sarah, which I assume would be similar to Tara. But I, I a lot of people will pronounce it Sarah. And that, that's not me. <laughs> now, anybody who saw that show, no matter how they pronounce Tara, Tara, they, they realize it had a complicated female protagonist, as in some sense does New Girl, as does Firecracker, uh, Astrid Krager, who is the... I guess can you call a, can you call a lady a scion of an empire? They can still be scions, right? I I, I don't know if <laughs> I don't I don't know if I'm versed in probably the Latin origins of it, but I think it's okay. Yeah. So you'd say she's the scion of this large defense contractor, this uh, Krieger Enterprises. She she comes from she comes from money that is morally ambiguous uh morally ambiguously gotten huh yeah i think i think she is she's an old money family that has historically has always found um uh moral ambiguities in order to make their giant fortunes uh <laughs> their plantation owners and and um and probably back into to her history um in germany somehow it found found their money through devious murderous means and uh yeah currently her grandfather in the 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 history of the in in the present of the book her grandfather is uh the second oldest living united states senator also a um also has this the the family has this defense contractor a weapons building company and that's where they have their enormous fortunes she's 17 years old astrid as high school student was once a student at a private academy in Connecticut, is removed from there by her father, placed in a public school. This puts the plot in a, and I would think a fine tradition of private school student displaced, but it's not one I've seen done well in a while. You know, do, do you think we've had a, a bit of a drought of that? I mean, everyone loves Rushmore, mm-hmm. but uh, you th- I just feel like I haven't seen it since then executed well. Did you want to bring that back? Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I was necessarily looking... Um, looking at other, other places where it was. Um, but yeah, no, Rushmore did it well. Rushmore had, um, you know, probably that image from Rushmore kept with me in some way where, uh, where Max had to go to public school, but still wanted to wear his, um, uniform. And, uh, (laughs) um, so I, I, I probably had that some part of my brain, um, uh, 
itching itching at me as I, as I was thinking of it. I mean, yeah, there there have been there have been other places where I've seen it. Probably after I've I've started already working on the project, I, I would see it in more places. I think there was a there was a cartoon on Fox a year or two ago. I think it was called Alan Gregory, and I oh, yeah. that that I think was a similar thing. But I didn't see it, and I w- I was already writing this, so I mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't want to uh, I, I didn't want to get it get it in my head or anything like that but i i think it's just in a grand tradition of fish out of water um comedy uh i i think i mean my my own my own uh experience was solely in public school i i don't have any fancy boarding school history but i found i thought that having a character come into this world that was familiar to me and probably most of the readership um as if an alien from another planet, um, <laughs> seeing seeing a uh, public high school completely anew through fresh eyes would be a real good um, comic place to to look at this world. And even even in the boarding school, Astrid was a bit of a fish out of water, wasn't she? I mean, you you have her say, you describe herself as just saying, "I'm Astrid Kreger. I do things," something like that, all capitalized. And I think of. We mentioned Max Fisher, the resourceful troublemaker. She's also in the resourceful troublemaker tradition. I mean, she was a bit of an alien, even in the world of rich kids, uh, rich kids and foreigners, as she describes it, uh, as she is in in the public school system, no? Yeah, I I think she is kind of classically a loner and in in a way that, um, not, not by the way that a lot of people are just from a desire to fit in and, and, and nobody sort of allowing them in. I, I think Astrid is somebody who was raised with this independent streak, not depending on people, not being mushy with feelings and emotions and a desire to have people around her just to, to give her support and, mm-hmm. and love and affirmation. She lives by um, this idea that the only person you can depend on is yourself because you are the only person who's not going to ultimately let you down. And I think that makes her a hard individual and somebody who probably will not admit to her desire to have friends and love and affection in her life. But I think throughout the course of this story, at least is able to open herself up a little bit more to the outside world and realize that this thing that she ultimately wasn't looking for, which just kind of having people in her life is, is something that she sorely needs. Hmm. Now, certainly for most of the book, she doesn't want people around her for emotional support, as she would say, I think, but she does want people around for tactical support. Mm-hmm. She wants to execute plans. She sizes up everybody to see what they could be good at. And you know, I think of the line from, the last thing George Papard always said on the A-Team. I love it when a plan comes together. She's not that different from old Hannibal, is she? No, I I probably did not. Uh, um, I was a big A-Team fan as a kid. I had an A-Team lunchbox. Um, I've tried, since it was available on Netflix, I tried to uh, show my show it to my wife as if to say no 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 watch this this is this is something worth seeing but I think if you, out of the context of nineteen of the early nineteen eighties I don't right. think you can come into the eighteen and enjoy it I mean, that kid can't exist outside the context of the early eighties the eighteen that's maybe the early eightiesist thing there is I think uh, they use machine guns and just just an array of bullets and nobody ever gets shot on the A-team. Nothing, right. No damage ever happens, even though it's incredibly violent. Some cars might turn over. 
Um, yeah, but back to your back to your initial question. Yeah, Astrid um, sees people. Yeah, sees people for their usefulness. Mm-hmm. Sees people kind of as props. And um, and yeah, she. It, and I think her her eyes on people are yeah. How how is how, how can somebody how how can I simply use somebody to to uh, to help myself and give them only what they need in order to to have them provide this this use for me and as somebody who comes from wealth this comes easily to her at least initially um she has this idea that and she's probably right that most people have prices it's particularly in the world that she she came that she came from people have a desire to to want whether it's uh material needs or um or uh alcohol or, or whatever it is that she could somehow provide. I mean, there's, there's a character, Pierre, who just wants, claims to want just, uh, her, um, nominal affection, which she gives occasionally as if it were, you know, as if it were money that she was distributing Mm -hmm. and she, that she, uh, sees basically human, human relationships as some sort of commercial enterprise, um, which she, she is able to deal with until um, her power is basically taken away. When she goes to public school, she realizes that the, um, the things, the rules that she has abided by, the, the rules that she's, that she's lived her life by don't always work, that she is, that she is outside of her comfort zone. Her power is no longer as useful. I mean, people certainly can be bribed in public school. I think she just doesn't, it, she mentions at one, at one point, it's like she has Confederate currency in her wallet. She doesn't quite know how, how it all works there. So she's immediately kind of powerless. You mentioned having grown up yourself going to entirely public schools. So what did you need to do to get your mind into the world that Astrid came from, this this boarding school, the separate world of, of rich kids and foreigners who, uh, who have been sent away from their homeland uh, uh, because their parents made money there, uh, or, or scions, the world of scions, I guess, and I don't mean the cars. Um, <laughs> what did you, how did you get a handle on this odd place Astrid is from? I'm not positive. I got a full handle on it. I, I, I it was mostly guesswork. I, I think I talked to a friend who went to a fancy private school to at least get a little bit of an idea of um, how their day is structured. But beyond that, I, I was dealing with a level of wealth that I think in my mind could only probably exist in, in, a fantasy. Yeah. Um, I, I was just sort of making it up as it went along. I imagine, you know, this would be um, the point zero one percent. So if 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 they were to read this and and think that I got it inaccurately, right. I, 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 that's fine. I think most of the audience probably um, sees this level of wealth kind of almost as a fantasy land, and so I was able to not really hold to any sort of accuracy. Mm-hmm. Plus it's all kind of told from Astrid's distorted point of view. So I, I think a lot of things I was able to probably get away with not being entirely accurate because she's an unreliable narrator. She's un- unreliable for the sake of snarky observations though, mm-hmm. right? She's, she, I don't know what she, would she say Would the character say she's making jokes. It reads like she's always making jokes, but I don't know if she would necessarily think she was a jokester in any sense. No, I, I mean, I, I think, I think her comedy or if she was to view it as, as such would be in 
in in her ability to cut at somebody with an insult. No, I, I think she says you've got to be they've got to be true. Insults are best when true or only work when true. Yeah, and I think I think that is that's accurate. I think that's all adolescence. I mean, <laughs> nothing nothing quite hurts as much as somebody noticing the thing that you were hoping beyond hope that nobody would notice. And I mean, I think, I think that's why, like, you know, I think middle school is even meaner than, than high school. Cause I think that's first when people realize like the, the power that somebody has just by, by pointing out the most obvious, the most obvious thing. And of course the most obvious things are often the most hurtful things. I mean, I, I, I think Astrid likes to view her ability to cut somebody down as something that requires a little bit of finesse. And I think that's why it comes off more as jokes than just pure cruelty, because um, I think, you know, she, she doesn't want to be tacky and she doesn't, she doesn't want to be dumb. Like she, she wants to, she wants to seem like her insults come from a place of thought, but, but no, I don't, I don't think she would necessarily think that she was a jokester, but her, point of view just by design by by the fact that she is somebody that kind of comes into a world without a ton of insecurity and uh you know is feels very free to say what is on her mind it you know it that's sort of where comedy where her comedy comes from and it still comes off as very funny because Mm -hmm. she is nothing if not honest this ability to cut to someone's core and her ability as well to size somebody up and find out their skills. I mean, those are just two sides of one skill, aren't they? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's basically seeing people not as, you know, not not as a complete thing, but, it, you know, seeing, seeing a person as props mm-hmm. or, or as parts, seeing a person as uh, different things that you can deconstruct for whatever reason, you know, see, seeing somebody as, as a the thing the thing that makes them you know the the thing that that makes that that they fear that everybody notices and the thing that they are good at and um you know and the thing that you know that and their price those are all the different parts of you know asher doesn't care about the things that you know anybody's hopes or dreams or aspirations or their relationship with you know their their girlfriends or their parents, like Astrid sees somebody as, as the, as the sum of the sum total of their parts, at least that, that is the point of view she comes in with at the beginning of the book. I use this term to describe the book at the beginning, but it's a very popular term, I suppose, maybe a purely marketing term, but what exactly is a young adult novel? Young adult novel. I, I mean, it's, yeah, it, it is, it is become this, this marketing term. I mean, I guess it's, um, I I guess it's middle grade, I guess, is for people who are in middle school. I, I might be getting this wrong. And I think young adult is kind of 12 and up, um, but but about the lives of adolescents, about the lives of probably high school age people. I don't think it really existed when I was young, n- not to the degree it does now. Um, but I, I think it is it is the the this genre of of uh readers who um who either are looking to be to be uh high school age teenagers soon or are high school age teenagers themselves but now it's become a genre where you know adults adults will read it too um i think you know i think the harry potters of the world you know brought brought uh um and then the hunger games sort of brought young adults to um 
to everybody as something that is not just kind of for kids. And, um, and I think it's so, but, but more than anything, it's just, it just deals with these themes that, um, are in these characters that are of a certain age. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a, I spend a lot of time of my life and of the writing that I do on my own and for television shows, writing about adolescence and thinking about adolescence. I, I think it is such a significant time that, you know, for everybody, um, and it's not not because the characters are necessarily not because they're less experienced and not because they're a bit more naive than hardened adults, but I think it's because it is a point in one's life when they are smart at a probably more or less an adult level, yet the things that happen in their world just feel like it has greater consequence. Like mm. I've always I always sort of think in terms of Adolescence is just the time when every single thing felt like the end of the world. Right. You know, every romance and and every fear and and everything just felt so much bigger. And uh, that just kind of an exciting time place to write. And it's also a, probably the last time, maybe college, but it's the last time when everyone around you is pretty much your same age and kind of in the same place as you. And I and once you get older and have jobs and work with different kinds of people. You don't, you don't really have your entire peer group is not people who kind of have the same experiences as you or at at the same point in in their life. And so it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a different thing, but Mm. high school is a time when everyone is kind of going through it in different ways, but everyone's kind of going through the same sort of feelings and age things and, and, you know, prom and summer vacation are all the same time every year. And there's, there's a sense in which middle school age, high school age, you get to that age and you've outgrown the world that has been installed there for you or built there for you. The suburbs are good for child rearing, but a 15-year-old in the suburbs is bored out of his mind in a way a five-year-old isn't, and I mean, let alone a high schooler. And school, I mean, when you're in high school, by that time, you know that school is essentially, I don't want to say jail, but it's just there to keep you from want roaming around the world while adults get their work done. It's there mm-hmm. because you, you're useless as yeah. a teenager. You realize that. And that is the root of a lot of these problems, right? I mean, we have adult energy and adult mental powers at that age, but we can't do anything with them except so we just got to make fun of each other and stuff because how, how else do you burn the extra bandwidth, right? Yeah, I mean, it's and it's it's survival. I mean, it's probably why so much of young adult is is are these sort of dystopian, you know, everyone, everyone killing each other, everyone dying sort of situation, because it's, it's every single day, you have to wake up, you have to go somewhere. And you're just hoping to, to survive till the end of the day, emotionally. But I mean, I I mean, there's, there's no, there's no uh, killing or murder or anything in this book, but it's still at sort of that time of your life where you're just, you're just trying to get through it. You're just, you, you see the light at the end of it. You see, you, you know, if you're, whether you're a freshman or you're, you're just finishing up your senior year, you see that you're about to the, you're going to be 18 soon. The end, the end is near. The world is eventually yours. And you just like, you just got to serve out these last, these last, few years and then you you know you get your parole hearing and then you're out of it <laughs> you've mentioned that young adult novels as a genre or a marketing bracket or whatever they they became prominent after we were really the age to be reading them middle schooler but there was 
there were seventies, eighties, uh, young adult novels as well as, as I recall. I mean, there, there were, except they were more like, you know, there was those dystopian ones, some of them seriously dystopian mm-hmm. and savage, which were always fascinating. Like it was written, like they were written for 50 year olds, but only marketed toward 11 year olds. Right. Uh, yeah, some of these like William Slater books come to mind, but, uh, there were also so many proto young adult novels that I just read like, Maybe you remember these, but just read like manuals, like age is going to come. Hey, girls, here come your periods. Hey, guys, get used to those erections because there's going to be more of them mm-hmm. with a thin scrim of of uh, people will die at some point with a thin scrim of dopey fiction over them. I mean, lessons in what not to do when you're writing a young adult novel. Do you remember these books? Yeah, I mean, I remember the good version. I remember Judy Bloom was the sort of good version of that. Uh, are you there? But th- those, I guess, would be uh, skew a little bit younger, but um the, there was the girl version was, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. And the boy version, I think it was, then again, maybe I won't. And the boy version was, uh, him dealing with the first time he had, uh, a, a wet dream and the girl was dealing with the first time she had her period. Yeah. And yeah, it did, it, it did have these actual lessons in there, these things that these conversations that we'd rather not have with our parents. And I think that probably at some level was, how those books were marketed. They're like, listen, you know, you don't, you don't have to talk to your kids about this. Just, just they'll read the book when they're finished with the book. They'll, they'll basically know what these things are and, and how to deal with it. Um, I, I think, yeah. So I, I think it was a little bit of take your medicine and also there's going to be some fiction in there too. And now I think it's just, um, a, another, way to actually just write the stories that you might want to tell um, to a specific audience in which I guess there are some specific rules for how you reach them. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think there, I wrote a lot of curses in this book and I was, I was told by my editor that that would be okay. Um, we're, I, we're done pretending that kids weren't going to hear this yeah, any other way. Yeah, I, I don't know if I read a lot of books geared to kids with a lot of curses in it. And if I did, then I, you know, I, I looked at it kind of joyously, like I was doing something wrong, <laughs> but now this is just, this is purely for kids without, with the hope that this isn't, you know, going to feel like it's schoolwork that, that there could be just pure entertainment, right. um, for people of that age. And that's, I think where, how that the genre has sort of changed from when, when I was a kid. I mean, I think by the time, people who like to read uh, like me got to be like 13 or 14. We'd kind of grown out of the books that were meant for kids. And I think that's where, uh, you know, for me, I would read a lot of then Stephen King or, or stuff like that afterwards that still kind of had this joy for like this, this pure entertainment for, for kids, but it wasn't necessarily about, you know, um, divorce or the sub- oh, suburbia closing in or, or some like real big literary themes or anything. Uh, did you decide writing firecracker at some point there would be no, I'll call them lesson-y lessons in the book. Um, I, I mean, I guess there probably are a little bit hidden in there because, uh, um, that's why I, I say lesson-y. Yeah. There's no, maybe, maybe there's lessons. Yeah. I mean, the character, you know, a character needs to grow. It, at one point, Ashford says that, you know, this is the book where everything changed. This is the moment where everything changed and isn't all books about when everything changes. No, seriously, I haven't read a book. Is this, <laughs> is this true? Um, yeah. So I, I think, no, I, I wasn't, 
I think the thing that threw me most about uh, movies for teens or books for teens when I was young was that I it felt like it had a little bit of a um, adult disdain for young people in it. That that the idea that to write kids, not everyone did this, but to write young people. It was just some version of somebody stupider than 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 the person some writing dumb it. Dumb adults. Yeah, basically dumb adults. And I and I found that so insulting when I was young because I I really didn't believe myself to be that. And even looking back now, I I don't think that was true. I think, you know, adolescence and even younger, I mean, don't know everything. I mean, probably don't know how to pay the electric bill or or. Um, or you know how to how to do their taxes or anything like that. But the things that adolescents know about, I feel like they know everything about, and um, and so well, we put them in a world where they there's not much to know. So right. of course they think that. Of course, but I, I mean, even even then, like I think you, you, I, it was just more of a more of a focused expertise that I had. Like the things that I loved, I just devoured, and so I immediately I just didn't want this book to talk down to anybody. I didn't want it to feel like I was, I was trying to say, well, I'm a smart adult who's been through, uh, who's been through a few things. So I'm going you to turn your chair around, sort of yeah. sit backwards on it. Straight talk. <laughs> Listen, kids, <laughs> let me wrap to you a few minutes. Sweater over your shoulder. <laughs> so I, I think this is just, I would have, um, if I if I'd had the patience to write a book when I was seventeen, I would have probably written it the same way. I, it was just it it's not it's not a a book about about how I've grown in my life and how I'm going to tell you how to grow. It's just trying to be about an experience of a particular person, and that particular person, I think, I I would hope is as smart as anybody and as sort of capable as anybody. At that age, you know, growing up, we distrust lessons, whether they come in fiction, like pills put in a cat's food that they always manage to scoop out, or w even if they're just given straight, straight talk for teens, you know, uh, we just, we don't want to hear it. I'm not sure we always know why at that age, but it seems to me we grow up, we get to our late 20s or 30s and realize that some adults have very valuable teachings. Some adults have very unvaluable teachings, teachings best avoided, but you don't know which ones they are growing right. up. So it's like, you might as well ignore it all. Like some particularly, I guess they are irreverent teen characters do because how can you, how can you know? It's not all good advice. Yeah. I, I think that one of the big things that everybody goes through, um, part of growing up is realizing that the ad adults in our life are fallible. And I think I tried to you know, Astrid looks at her parents as basically nincompoops because that, and, and there are, it's probably an extreme version of a lot of people's, uh, how a lot of people look at their own parents. But, uh, I think whether it, whether it is a teacher or a parent or someone else, I mean, there's always going to be one person, um, who at one point we thought knew everything who we realize, um, is, doesn't or let us down. And, and I think that is, you know, that, that is kind of the, the sourest lesson that we, that we have to kind of learn on our own. And truthfully, no adult is going to consciously teach us that, that people do sometimes let you down. And from there, I think that distrust sort of comes that, um, you know, it, it, it's sort of why, you know, the, the act of, 
saying with absolutes, you know, don't do any of these things. Don't smoke and don't do drugs and don't drink. Um, take, you know, is goes through the filter of so many people and is immediately like, well, then I must do all of those things. Yeah. <laughs> I think of the D.A.R.E. program still the the standby, the mainstay of a lot of ironically worn t-shirts today. I don't know if you ever had D.A.R.E. growing up. Mm-hmm. I had it a few years. And they that thing about telling us that all drugs were equally dangerous really just scrapped the whole thing, didn't it? I mean, like, as soon as you, you know, that's not true even when you're 10. So it's like, well, I'm not going to. I'm not going to trust anything else you just said. <laughs> I think you were smarter than me at 10. I, I, I remember like I... I well, what I, things are all <laughs> equally dangerous? You know what I mean? Like, no, no, you were, I mean, but you're right. I mean, I, I should have looked at it with more distrust. <laughs> but I I mean, the D.A.R.E. program <laughs> worked with me for quite, quite some time. I remember certain after-school specials like really, really having an effect on <laughs> I me. Mean, there was the one uh, um, where the little kid got into his brother's stash of drugs, which were in a hollowed out uh, dictionary. And then was, you know, the, the movie ended with the little kid could like floating face down in the pool and oh my god that just <laughs> oh, that, that that just killed me that terrified me to no end so if, if for one person if if you, they could reach one person they reached me um but but yeah i mean it's it's that i mean just adolescents don't want to be lied to i mean it i think if there is lessons to be taught then it should be taught with um with at least the realization that, you know, it's half of this is, is, you know, you need to take with a grain of salt and, you know, and truthfully, you just need to use your judgment. I mean, I think adults don't trust the judgment of adolescents. So that's why they teach so many things in, in absolutes. That's, you know, you know, that's why uh, some schools teach abstinence only education, because if, if they, they some people feel like if they teach teenagers things with any sort of nuance, <laughs> then that nuance is going to be completely lost. But and and it, give them an inch, they'll take a mile. For right, that. right. And I and I think that that's you know might be true of some people. I I don't. I'm I'm not going to say that every adolescent or adult is going to understand nuance. But that I mean it's it's kind of the the only way it's going to work is to to understand that. The world is like full of gray things. And right. to understand that a screw up is going to screw up, you know, a screw yep. up's a screw up. The kids who are going to get it, they're going to get it. You can't really reach them all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, <laughs> and if if a kid is proudly a screw up, then you're just <laughs> simply by telling someone not to do things, you're simply giving them a guidebook. Like a, <laughs> you're you're handing them handing them a list of all the things that they should do to just fully realize their screwed upness. The idea of a kid proud of being a screw-up brings to mind those old, old Simpsons t-shirts back when Bart was really the star of the show, underachiever and proud of it. I mean, that's long since fallen away from from being a premise of The Simpsons is look at Bart the bad kid. And the the bad kid has been out of style for quite some time. What do you think it takes? I mean, it seems Astrid is a kind of bad kid, but not a bad kid in the way we used to love bad kids. There's there's a, there's a new breed of bad kid, I guess. Do you, would you consider her to be part of it? Um, I, yeah, I I do. I mean, she's certainly not an underachiever, and I do I do remember that idea that like, you know the, and you know, and I and I haven't been in high school in in, in quite a number of years, and so a lot of it is just uh, through the eyes of me, sort of trying to figure out how things have changed. But I I think the. Um, you know the the 
dropout rebel as icon is, uh, you know, you know, maybe changing. And I, I think that, you know, there, there are people who have reached success in unorthodox ways. And I think that is probably, I would assume is probably more exciting to adolescents. Like, you know, the, the idea that you don't have to take this route that your parents do, that you don't necessarily have to do great in school and then go on to college and then, and then, and then lead this, you know, and then get this, this lower rung job and, and ascend to this higher end job that, um, you know, the world right now is just so full of examples of, you know, particularly in, in technology about people who just did it, did it some obscure way, did it their way. And, and now the world is just banging at their doors. I mean, I think that is, uh, an exciting version of, of a rebel. Um, you know, it, it comes with monetary success. And I think that, you know, I, I think that there is, particularly in a, in a time when, when, you know, the economy is bad and, you know, and people are struggling for jobs, there still is this dream idea of being able to have everything you want with, but, but not having to do it by some sort of order, organized system. And maybe that is, you know, the, the new form of rebellion. I mean, I don't, I mean, that's not Asher's experience because Asher, you know, would grew up in money and, and presumably will stay moneyed for the rest of her life. Um, and I mean, I think people like that are, are, have been icons for, for a little while too. I mean, starting with, um, you know, it's how, how, um, reality television has, has sort of twisted these, these certain people into becoming celebrities. I mean, starting with, I guess, a Paris Hilton going to this, the Kim Kardashians of the world, just the people who, do nothing but grew up wonderful and and moneyed and, and then made a sex tape and you know and then made a sex tape and then found <laughs> found their life and success you know growing from that i mean i think you know asher it is is not that type of person either i don't think that she would happily place herself in front of a camera and and blather on like a moron for you know the public to to uh, gravitate to, um, but it's still, you know, these these people have sort of become these this this you know these templates for for one way to live their life, and I and I do I respect teenagers too much to think that they are actually the people who um, love Kim Kardashian. I actually <laughs> I, I, I I think it's 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 probably a generation a little bit older, but it's still you know whether whether it is explicitly those actual people on TV or just this idea that this kind of person really exists. I mean, I think that now has just actually become a type of person you could actually be. I mean, I think fame has always been this very. Uh, very exciting thing. It was very exciting for me when I was young to just, you know, to aspire to do something that, you know, came with fame and, and people knowing who you are. And I think that always exists. But I mean, since I was a teenager um, to now, people are famous for, for less, mm -hmm. for, for less, um, for less effort, or at least for less, like just pure raw talent or something like that. People right. just somehow are, are inadvertently famous. And whether that is a conscious thing that anybody sees, it, it certainly is a thing that filters down and just sort of affects how people see the world. 
there is a sense in which fame has become detached from other types of achie- types of achievement. It becomes more about earning fame in and of itself to get famous, not earning fame in a way that's attached to some other accomplishment. And it makes me think of a setting, a historical setting that I've heard analogized to high school, like the court of Louis the Fourteenth, say, where it was just a bunch of guys jockeying for position, detached from anything, from any other form of merit. Uh, and that's the way school popularity works, isn't it? Just detached from anything except for racking up more popularity. It's not related to any variable but how popularity can be achieved. And for the Astrids of the world, that's not a game worth playing, right? Yeah, I mean, popularity, I mean, I, I, I've got to imagine that, yeah, that, that exists in some form or another as it has existed, you know, as, as long as... You know, b- people were in schools like large enough for them to have any sort of social hierarchy whatsoever, mm. and and the things that are valued for that are, to an extent, it, it's it's beauty, and to an extent, it's athletic ability. But it, when I was thinking about my own high school experience and writing about it for this, and just thinking of it in my mind, at a certain point, it some people just fulfilled it by their desire to claim themselves to be the person that everybody, you know, wanted to look up to. I I think purely closed circle, pure Ouroboros. I I look back at my own high school experience and I, and I think about the people who would be regarded as popular, who were not necessarily the most beautiful and not necessarily, you know, these, these great athletes. It was, it was, it was purely this one circle of people (laughs) who, um, who, you know, lived in their own sort of world and, and, um, you know, stood stood on their own sort of level, and I I don't personally even remember having a desire to to be a part of it. Um, it's it, a covenant, you know. Yeah, it's 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 purely yeah, it's, it's a purely thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a snake that just ate its it ate itself, and 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 happily so. Um, Do you have any idea what careers that circle went on to? Um, that. Uh, Public relations, <laughs> public relations, and gas station employee. Yeah, one, two ends of the spectrum there. Either decent gas station attendants or very good PR people. You mentioned not having been in high school for a while. So, what did it take to update your understanding of what high school is like from you know 1993 to 2003? I mean, um, texting alone, right? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's it's texting, um, and it's you know. The internet existed when I was in high school, but nobody, nobody cool would use the internet or you wouldn't really, it, it, it didn't really in, intersect in people's lives. Um, I think, I think it's, you know, high school very much exists and I, I think it probably exists in a lot of the same ways. And I didn't play a lot with technology in this book because I find that writing about the internet and things going viral are just very boring things mm-hmm. to write about, but it, it is this, this shadow that probably looms over everybody um, that I don't think it, that I'm thankfully didn't exist when I was a teenager, that if you screw up grandly in high school, people beyond your high school will know about it. And <laughs> that's terrifying. Um, I, I mean, I think, I think that started whatever, whatever that, that video that they, they since parodied on arrest development with the kid um, with the, Star Wars lightsaber in his uh, oh, yes. video club. And I, I watched that video whenever it came out 10, 12, 13 years ago. Yes. And it was, I was so 
heartbroken for that kid because that would be the worst thing that could ever happen to somebody at any point. But now it, but, but there was always, there's always that glimmer that you can go to, you can go to college thousands of miles away and you can, you know, you can make your, make your name kind of a slightly different nickname. So not always, everyone always instantly knows you and you could kind of start fresh and start anew. And it's, it's gotta be this very fearful thing that who you are in high school follows you around forever in some way. Um, you know, that, that reputations become these, these very ingrained things. And, and I think, and people don't necessarily fear it too. I mean, they, people put themselves out there to such a great extent online and I'm as guilty as this anybody. Um, you know, people are kind of telling everything to the world and having these, having their private things happen very public. And maybe that, that takes the power out of some things. I, I don't quite know, but I think that is the, the big thing that I, I imagine must be different is, is the, is that everyone in some way could potentially screw up in a very big public way. I mean, I, I don't think that people necessarily succeed in that through that route in a very big public way, no. but watching, watching people do something that makes you cringe is a huge currency online. And that sort of follows people around forever. So I'd be terrified to be in high school right now. And I'm glad I'm not. There's another major difference maybe layered on top of that though, is that we're both glad we're not star Wars kid uh, who's stumbling around in the garage with his lightsaber or whatever he was doing uh, 10, 12 years ago. But we also mentioned Kim Kardashian is known because of that sex tape. That sex tape is not that much more masterfully executed than the Star Wars kid with his lightsaber. I mean, they're all, they're sort of the same form of media. Um, I can imagine a 12 year old now wishing he was Star Wars kid because a 12 year old now could capitalize on that. Star Wars kid could go on to conventions and clean up. You know, it's the yeah. Star Wars kid. It's like there's no. They've always said there's no such thing as bad publicity, but I think the youngest kids now who can do stuff really understand that in a way that other generations haven't. That's the, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I, I, I think that, so I, I think either way, it's, it's when you do it on purpose, whether you, you release your sex tape on purpose, whether you release your embarrassing thing on purpose, I think, uh, people in the world are too, are too savvy and they know, um, they they know the difference between something that you legitimately didn't want to have out there and something that you did. And I think, you know, I think that's that let's just for argument's sake, say that Kim Kardashian did not want that sex tape out there initially, which probably is believable. Um, and, but you know, so, and I think that makes it more interesting for the public to see. So, you know, wh whatever it is, something that you know that you're not supposed to see and that somebody wouldn't want it to be seen makes it inherently better. And yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess there is a way to, um, to, to make, uh, to take something, whether, whether it's bad or good and, and capitalize uh, on it and make it into something greater. Um, and, yeah, I think that is that's where it takes smarts that I don't know if I would even have or I, I'm even capable of of knowing how to take a bad situation and twist it into something, twist it into something that you can that you can use. And maybe just that Kim Kardashian got lucky that that her family is so 
shamelessly <laughs> ambitious and um and not everybody is as shamelessly ambitious and sometimes you know if if star wars kid i would imagine just probably you know wanted to crawl into a cave afterwards and and i don't know i've i've i i checked up on him online <laughs> periodically and i i don't think it went great for him but um you get like a free ipod or something he right might have, he might have got a free ipod which <laughs> free ipod in 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 uh free, free second free, generation ipod yeah, free ipod in 2003 it's gonna do great for him um but but yeah i mean i, I and i think maybe that's how fast things have gone that you know that people that, that even in the next decade everyone you know Everyone sort of knows that there might be a way to capitalize on something mm. that that if you do something bad or good and it gets enough exposure, the Today Show is going to want you on. And no. the question is whether or not you are going to take them up on it, whether or not you can laugh at yourself. And I think that's something that very few people are capable of doing. And it's it. People are on the whole very sensitive. And so um, can you laugh at yourself? If you can, maybe maybe you can kind of turn it into something. You know, maybe you can find a way to get into like a, you know, to, to take your terrible internet video and, and show up in a GoDaddy commercial and then make some money. <laughs> the the way a video goes viral just because we, just if it's a video we weren't, you know, quote unquote, weren't supposed to see, that's not a world apart from, you know, the Bart Simpson model of the bad kid, right? Who's, why do you throw spitballs? Why do you skateboard in church? Just because the rules are against it. You know, I mean, it's, there's, there's a certain simple type of motivation that, uh, is very easy to use in, in settings of adolescence. And one that's so simple, it's, it's probably best avoided when you're writing about it, right? You, you want a more, you want a character like Astrid who's, doesn't just break rules because they're there. Yeah. I mean, I think, Astrid, I saw as somebody who I kind of, I think most people wish that they were when they were a teenager, somebody who is not hindered by doubt or insecurity, just, just somebody who can enter a situation with confidence without, without fear of, of losing. And, um, you know, I, I think that's different from a rule breaker who is still in a way kind of conforming to, you know, if the rules, if you call yourself just a, just a rule breaker, then, then the rules in which you live your life are the opposite of whatever is written down. And it still right. is, it's stifling in its own sort of boring, boring way. But and if the rules go, go away, your identity does too. So yeah, exactly. So, you know, I mean, once, once you're out in your own life and, and, you know, the rules, the rules that apply to you are, you know, rules in which you can go to jail for, then you right. just end up in jail or, or you're just, or, or you live this very sort of boring existence. But for Astrid, Astrid liked to see, you know, like, likes to live her life as if she has an end game and the end game is not just, you know, just to kind of watch the world burn. It's, it's for her own, for her own ambitions or, or revenge or whatever it is that she is looking to do. So if, if something can be achieved simply by going the more traditional path, you know, going by the rules, she'll happily do it that way. Um, but the, the easiest route or the route that she can usually best traverse are, is often the one that, you know, in, involves, subterfuge or doing things that that are morally ambiguous or against the rules and you know she, her her morality is looking out for herself and so those rules only apply to her as 
problems if if it doesn't kind of get in the way of her her basic life goals, which is to succeed in the ways that she wants. She joins the ranks of, of a great many female protagonists of young adult novels, most of them not as resourceful as she is. I and mean, we mentioned those proto YA books, the lesson books. You know, these are for girls and these are for boys. These ones are about periods. These are about <laughs> wet dreams. And the girl, I had, I'd never read a lot of the girls' ones, but they're they're a lot better regarded today than the boys' ones are. And that well, this this is introduced to the seven pillars of womanhood or what have you for generations upon generations of American women. You know, whereas the boys' ones tended to boil down to like, don't try not to impregnate anybody. And that's like, okay, <laughs> lesson learned. Young adult novels now seem to be, maybe for this reason, a, a I don't want to say female dominated, but a female oriented literary world. Are they not? I think so. I mean, I, I can't say that I'm an expert on on where on what is out there, but I think for the most part, women do or girls, young girls, read more than boys. And I, I think this was true when I was young too. I I read more books about girls because when I went to the library and looked on the shelf, that was what was there. Mm. And um, you know, I as long as you didn't or I didn't have any real big hangups on it. And plenty of people did. And, you know, I certainly got made fun of from time to time, depending on what book <laughs> I was reading. Um, but that was what was there. And, and, uh, so I did read, you know, a f- bunch that were good and a bunch that were terrible. And I think, you know, when, when you are, when you're just trying to read all that's available, you're going to read a lot of good and bad and terrible. Mm-hmm. And I, and, um, but I think still, yeah, still to this day, I, I just think, I think uh, girls are probably more likely to to read more books of this genre or or realistic things. I mean, I the boys' books from when I was a kid, I, I remember them being a lot about baseball. Oh um, boy, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, and they, they were a lot, and, you know. And then there were just stuff that were just. Uh, gross things or horror or or whatever but if you were trying to read a book if you're looking for a book that was contemporary that was set in the real world about real people for whatever reason that was regarded as a female genre and thus the protagonists were often female um i wrote this book um i i don't i don't know if i had a like a um economic or a marketing thought behind why I made it a female protagonist, but I did know that I had so much more experience reading books of that genre about, about women. I like writing female protagonists because it just helps to separate a character a little bit from myself and my own experience, um, at least on a cosmetic level. Um, it just it just helps to make a more active character sometimes for me. So I just decided, you know, when I came up with this character, it the character was female, and that and that's just sort of how I wanted to how I wanted to write it. But I think it's probably better that way um, for for writing a young adult book. I mean, when I'm looking online and and seeing people who've mentioned reading the book on whatever websites people used to talk about that. I would say that I've I've seen almost no guys re- have read this book, mm-hmm. um, at least amongst adolescents, and uh, I I don't know I don't know if if that is just simply a product of females read more or not uh, females of that age read more or not or just you know they see a bright colored book <laughs> and uh, and a guy just 
is, is not interested. Um, I, 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 the book cover is probably, uh, a little more, a little more, uh, specifically female oriented than, uh, than other books have been. So, you know, I, I, I guess I see perhaps not a lot of guys would pick it up just purely out of coincidence, but, uh, no, it does have my name on it, and David is not a girl's name. <laughs> fair, fair enough. No, no sense. You wanted to write it under a pseudonym, uh, like you sometimes see sort of Davida Isersons or what have you. You're just going going straight and honest. And the cover is striking. And inside, you know, we we see you can write you can write female characters, but the million dollar question is, you know, those those girls' books, shall we say, may have may have helped you in the young adult reading years to write female characters, but at the time, did they help you in in the grand mission of understanding girls, you know, which we all wanted to do at that age? Did those books help? No, no, not, not at all. Not at all. And um I I think it was it was always strange to me because as as the female characters try to understand boys yeah, I think they also kind of, they also, you know, it was, it was me as a boy reading a book uh, about a girl written by a woman as the girl tried to understand the boy. It, it I, I felt like the math there was always a little bit, a little bit off too. What were you shouting like, I can explain it to you, to the character? <laughs> it's, it's, there's, there's no subtlety. He only me- simply meant the thing that he said. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, Chill. <laughs> but, um, Chill, Judy Bloom. But I don't, I don't think so. I, I, I don't think that, I, um, I don't know how true a lot of books are about getting to some sort of grand experience you know, that, that, that covers so, so many people of, you know, covers an entire gender. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, I think that, you know, sometimes, uh, a girl and I could have a conversation about a particular Sweet Valley High book. No. I, don't, I don't think, I don't think it would turn into a romance, no, no, no. I think, but, uh, but we could, we could certainly talk about plot points. Did you read the whole Sweet Valley High series? No, I mean, I think is there that, were, is I it think, possible? I think there were hundreds of them. I read the, they were, they would occasionally be ones that were mysteries, like mm. the, the, the Sweet Valley, the, the Wakefield twins, were they the Wakefield twins? They, they stumbled upon a murder or something. And I remember reading those and, and thinking that that was okay. At some point, they, they, those books became weird and supernatural, right? Like they're just, they were, they were, uh, it's like soap operas where they suddenly discover underground cities, right? I mean, they just, you sense the desperation as it's still better than what we had as, you know, intended for us as boys, the Hardy boys, for example, or just, yeah. just, you didn't want to read them wrestle another smuggler to the ground another another week you know what i mean it was still better what the girls had yeah it's um yeah i think i think every four or five books they would have like all right this is a supernatural book i don't i don't i don't recall that in the next book like as they were like talking about prom things they were like remember that time that we saw that ghost mm-hmm. <laughs> i think it was it was kind of a, it was well, forget about that it's kind of a very contained thing yeah. um i didn't read the hardy boys i read a lot of encyclopedia brown which i think was geared a little bit younger but i i really dug that i really dug that there was um <laughs> that, that, like I think many, I think adult novels do this occasionally. Like you should go to the back of the book and turn it upside down, and then find out if your answers were correct. Right. But uh, the thing about Encyclopedia Brown books and a lot of series is every. I, I think this was same as Sweet Valley High. 
like the first 20 pages of every book was exactly the same. It just, yeah. just would go through the thing if, if you could remember it again. Like, uh, um, Encyclopedia Brown was called that because he read every book in the encyclopedia and <laughs> nobody knows how his dad can solve all the cases. And I think the, the Wakefield twins are, um, Elizabeth and Jessica are, um, look the same, but they're different in any way, in every way. Um, <sighs> It's something you get as as a writer of books the chance though to do the sort of upside down last page see if you will write if you were writing you know a new generation of encyclopedia brown books that's a device you can't use on television what what else did you get writing a novel what were the moments like oh i'm getting something an opportunity here with this craft i i don't get when i'm writing an episode of new girl when i'm writing with collaborators for actors that will be directed and taken out of my hands effectively i think i mean in for writing scripts you never want to write internal you you know your character your character needs to say the things that they mean and they need to and we only understand them as they interact with other people um they're observations and their sort of point of view of the world that is something that i mean there there's there are ways to to show that in a script but it it's much harder whereas with with this book you know i, I wrote it in first person i wrote it from astrid's um you know from astrid's point of view and astrid rambles and um and you only get to see people the way that she sees them and she jumps around a bunch and she can have a conversation with somebody and editorialize everything that that person says. And, uh, you know, and also, oh my gosh, books are so many more words than writing a script. <laughs> um, so both good and bad, um, you, you, you know, I, I could, I mean, this, this sort of is, this book is kind of like a season of a television show just purely by, by words sake. And, uh, and so that's, you know, so it took a lot more time to do it, but part of the reason I wanted to do this and, uh, and found the time to do it while I was juggling other jobs is when you are writing, when you are writing for film and television, it's, um, you are just another person involved in this greater thing. Um, uh, on a TV show, you collaborate with a great number of writers and, um, and then there are still actors and directors and, you know, lighting people and every, everyone has their own sort of stamp on it. And at the end, it's its own thing. Um, you know, it's, it's never really truly yours. And for me, who didn't, hasn't created the shows that I've written for, it's, it's even less so me. So this is an opportunity to just put everything I kind of had in my head out there and having like a complete thing that is mine. And that was, for me, that was something that I felt like I just needed to do while I working on these other things, working on these other shows. I would imagine Astrid 20 years on reading, if she were to read this book would not be too embarrassed at, at the way that her thoughts were at, at the way her thoughts read, you know, it, people, people our age will often say, oh, when I was a teenager, look how stupid I was. Oh, I read old live journal posts or whatever, <laughs> whatever they do, diary entries. Look, I, oh, oh, look at my hair, look at my clothes. We There's a sense, a sense in which we, we want to run our past selves down. If we think about it, we talked about this earlier, we probably didn't deserve that at that age. We were probably smarter, probably probably smarter than we want to think we were, probably better looking than we want to think we were, probably better <laughs> in all respects than we want to dismiss ourselves as having been 
why do we why do we want to hate on our teenage self so much <laughs> um you know it's it's like everything i mean the fact that styles change and and just the pop culture changes and everything just it, it gives us such an interesting perspective to look on a you know, to look back on our yearbooks and look back on photo albums and, and to be terribly embarrassed <laughs> by ourselves. Um, yeah, it is, it is sort of part of growing up so much is that you are so struggling to differentiate yourself and to, to stand out in so many ways, um, as an adolescent, I think that is the kind of the greatest thing that you don't have perspective yourself. I mean, I, I remember at every point in my life, seeing a photograph of myself that might've been a week old and immediately becoming embarrassed by it. I think <laughs> you, you never kind of know how you look to other people. Right. And so, so when you have some perspective and some life experience behind you, you'll be able to look back at yourself at any point and see yourself in the way that others see you. And I don't think that's even necessarily um, a product of age. I think it's just a product of perspective. It's, it's, it's the scariest thing in the world to see yourself as other people see you. I, I mean, I, I don't, I, I think that I've got to imagine that's probably the hardest part about like being an actor is to, you know, turn on TV or go into a movie theater and then, and see yourself up there and have no sort of control over how you're perceived anymore. Mm. Um, Much better to write the words they have to say. <laughs> I, and well, at least then you can like, uh, I think you know most people. Most people in the world don't think that a writer even exists in those things. They think the actors make up the words themselves. So if as you, they go along, yeah, as they go along. So if you, uh, if 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 everyone loves something, you can you can say you know I, I did write that, and, <laughs> and and then and then if if there is no reaction, then you don't really have to say anything. <laughs> I've been speaking here at LARB HQ in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, with David Iserson, who writes on television, who writes slash has written on television shows like New Girl, Saturday Night Live, The United States of Terra, or Tara, whichever you prefer, and Up All Night. His new young adult novel, though anybody can read it, doesn't matter if you're 17 or 57 or a man or woman child, it's Firecracker. David, thanks so much. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can find much more at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.